That one's, this one's better? All right. Good evening. I'm Roger Juan Maldonado, president of the New York City Bar Association. Uh, welcome to tonight's the Thomas E. Dewey Medal Ceremony. The Thomas E. Dewey Medal is presented annually to an outstanding assistant district attorney in each of the city's district attorney's offices and the Office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor. The award was proposed by the City Bar's Criminal Advocacy, Co Advocacy Committee and was first awarded in 2005. Among prosecutors in New York County, Thomas E. Dewey is remembered as having ushered in the era in which the District Attorney's Office was staffed by professional prosecutors uh, who chosen on merit rather than they were before through political patronage. And I'm sure, given everything that's going on in the world today, uh, it's not lost on you the importance of having an independent political prosecution arm. Mr. Dewey first came to the public's attention as a prosecutor in the 1930s, instituting successful criminal proceedings against gangsters, bootleggers, and organized crime figures of the day. By 1937, Mr. Dewey was elected District Attorney of New York County, where he served for one term before resigning to run for governor. We are very, very glad that you can join us this evening. Uh, among the things that you know, I most enjoy as City Bar President is bringing together professionals in the various aspects of our, you know, our discipline and their families to recognize the incredibly hard work, the very important work done by them. And this is just one more uh, opportunity for us to say thanks to you. Um, I want to turn the proceedings over to Michael Miller, a partner in the law firm of Steptoe & Johnson, who will introduce tonight's featured speaker, John M. Ryan. Please give Mr. Miller a very warm welcome. This is so cool. Well, so good evening. My name is Mike Miller, um, and I am a partner at the law firm of Steptoe & Johnson. But uh, on this evening, far more importantly, um, I am an alum of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Had the distinct pleasure of working there between 1985 and 1993 in Trial Bureau 30, the Special Projects Bureau, and uh, uh, for five years in the Frauds Bureau. An amazing experience. It is my incredible pleasure uh, to be Master of Ceremonies tonight for what is the 15th annual Thomas E. Dewey Medal Award presentation. Um, to get things started, let me first of all just thank everyone for, for making it here tonight. Not only is the weather challenging, and it is certainly that, uh, but I know many of you have traveled from uh, all over uh, the city of New York to get here, whether it's on uh, the subway or, or buses or, or driving. Uh, not an easy task. Um, I also see that there are family members here. Uh, very excited to see everybody here supporting your friends, colleagues, and family members. Um, and thank you, of course, to the City Bar for hosting this wonderful event. Um, I'll echo a little bit of what you've heard before. Um, this is the 15th anniversary, or the 15th year, of the Dewey uh, Award Ceremony. And it is awarded to outstanding assistant district attorneys in each of the five boroughs and uh, with a special narcotics prosecutor. As you can imagine, it is no easy feat to decide who to give that award to. 
There are many talented, uh, effective, tenacious, and ethical prosecutors in all of the offices represented here tonight. In many respects, there's hardly a person in this room who doesn't deserve recognition for all of that incredible work. And for that, you should give yourselves a round of applause. The, um, the job of selecting the award recipient is handled by a, a committee that is chaired by Tom Dewey. Um, Tom Dewey's uh, grandfather is the Thomas E. Dewey, uh, after whom this medal uh, uh, has been named. Uh, Tom is a great guy. I've worked with him on this, that committee for a number of years. And I believe, I'm hopeful that some of the other committee members are here. Whether they're here or not, I just want to acknowledge their, their hard work. Uh, uh, Dan Alonzo, uh, Tom Curran, Susan Hoffinger, and Andrew Ruska. Uh, it's a great pleasure to work with all of them. And uh, uh, if you could all just, while we're giving applause, just one more round of applause for them. So now, it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's keynote speaker, Jack Ryan, the acting Queens County District Attorney. Jack is a New York City lad through and through. Uh, he was born in Brooklyn, uh, educated in the hallowed halls of Archbishop Malloy High School, St. John's University, and St. John's Law School. And I believe, while he may have left town occasionally, he has uh, uh, worked almost every minute of his professional career here in the city of New York. Jack has been a prosecutor for 45 years, um, including many years of service with the Queens District Attorney's Office, where he is now, but also with the New York State Attorney General's Office. And he performed briefly as a special assistant, both, I think, in the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of New York. Jack has had a storied career. Just a handful of some of his notable cases include investigating the 1975 bombing incident at LaGuardia Airport uh, that killed 11 people and wounded another 74. He presented the Son of Sam case to the grand jury, which indicted David Berkowitz for two murders and seven attempted murders. He obtained the conviction of a member of the Puerto Rican separatist movement who was making uh, bombs in Jackson Heights. And while, he, while working with the New York State Attorney General's office, uh, ran the investigation into the allegations that had been made at that time by Tawana Brawley. After handling many high-profile and challenging cases, Jack quickly moved up the ranks in the Queens District Attorney's office. For over 22 years, Jack served as second-in-command to longtime Queens District Attorney Richard Brown. In that role, Jack was responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of D.A. Brown's office, and, and, and Jack has left his imprint on virtually every facet of that office. Not long before he passed away, uh, D.A. Brown recalled Jack fondly as a great colleague and, more importantly, a close and trusted friend. D.A. Brown added that for Jack, serving the people of Queens County and the cause of justice always has been the only reward he needs. Uh, Jack told me that he's fond of telling new prosecutors uh, as they join the office, welcome to the best job you will ever have. Uh, each of us in this room, whether you're an alum like me or still currently serving in an office like many of you, um, know that what Jack means, uh, that Jack means what he said. 
And, and it, it, we also know that it's true. It's an amazing job. While you're there, enjoy it. When you're gone, you'll, you will look back very fondly on that experience. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please let me introduce you to this year's keynote speaker, Jack Ryan, who is still working hard every day at the best job he will ever have. I want to see how this thing works. Thank you. going to make me wish I wrote a better speech. Thank you. The, the introduction could actually be longer than my speech. I want to thank the Dewey Committee uh, for doing this every year and congratulate tonight's winners. Uh, I promise uh, to be brief no matter how long it takes. Uh, DA Robert Morgenthau, Judge John Keenan, Judge Albert Rosenblatt, Judge Sterling Johnson, Judge Ann Donnelly, Dan Alonzo, me. What is my name doing with all these distinguished individuals? Until tonight, my name would never have appeared in the same paragraph with theirs. They were all previous keynote speakers at the Dewey Award. Tonight, I am privileged, although not qualified, to join that select group. For that, I can thank Dan Alonzo. For that, you can blame Dan Alonzo. <laughs> when Dan honored me by asking me to do it, I resisted. I am comfortable speaking off the cuff about any topic, regardless how little I know. Um, I often sound better the less I know about the topic. It is giving prepared remarks at an event such as this to an audience such as this that gives me pause. I asked Dan, why me? What should I talk about? Dan diplomatically pointed out that basically I'm playing on the back nine of my career. <laughs> and the experience that brought me to this point may be of some value to the other prosecutors who are soldiering these strangely difficult times for prosecutors. Dan says one thing we don't need is another best job you'll ever have speech. Sorry about that, Dan. <laughs> What I do think is one of my strengths is recognizing what I don't know and recognizing who, needs to know, who knows what I need to know. I needed to get thoughts together for this speech. I remember the speech that Judge Frank Sedita, who's here tonight, former district attorney of uh, Erie County and former president of the DA's association. I remember a speech that he gave, and I remember that, remarks that Richmond County ADA Ann Grady gave when she received the Dewey Award. I called Frank and I said, Frank, I'm going to plagiarize a good part of your speech. He told me, it is only plagiarism when you copy from one person, but it is scholarship when you copy from more than one person. <laughs> well, that confirmed my intent to copy from Anne as well, and a good part of what follows is therefore scholarship. It is time. It is time to define ourselves instead of permitting our antagonists to define us. It is time for us to stop being grateful when things don't get worse. It is time to stop being on the defensive. It is time to seize the narrative. Former Queens and Bronx ADA Dan McCarthy devoted countless hours teaching other prosecutors about the art of persuasion. He taught us that when it came to the merits of the people's case, the first person who must be persuaded is none other than the prosecutor. And he taught the key to persuading the jury, and by extension the audience, is the selection of a theme that resonates in our shared values. For once you have a compelling theme, you will also have the better story and the most persuasive narrative. For us, and especially at this critical moment, it is essential that we seize the narrative. Seizing the narrative means with begins with defining ourselves instead of permitting others to be labeled by, instead of being labeled by others. We are lawyers. 
And like all lawyers, we are sworn with the duty to zealously represent our clients within the bounds of the law. But we are not merely lawyers, we are prosecutors. And because we are prosecutors, we take an additional oath, uniquely only to prosecutors, to do justice. Practicing law is a profession, but being a prosecutor, being a prosecutor is a vocation. Being a prosecutor is a vocation because being a prosecutor is not merely what we do. Being a prosecutor is more precisely and more profoundly who we are. Being a prosecutor is also a vocation because of our oath is not merely to represent the interest of an individual, but to represent the interest of a civilized society. A defense attorney's client's interests can range from the righteous to the selfish to the morally ambiguous to the irreprehensible. We as prosecutors are not interested in representing a cause that is morally ambiguous or reprehensible because we represent quite literally the interest of the people. Indeed, as I look around this room, I see the most honorable in women, men and women of this state faithfully representing the people of this state. And what the people we represent crave most from our justice system, regardless of where they live, work or worship, is simply that justice, not games, gamesmanship, but justice. Justice is not about revenge or retribution or satisfying the appetites of the mob. Sadly, the word justice is sometimes used as a cliche or an anachronism to advance an agenda that has little to do with justice. In my view, the pursuit of justice for any DA boils down to three things. One, the conviction of the guilty. Two, the exoneration of the innocent. And three, safeguarding the integrity of the criminal justice system. It seems to me that if we adopt and rigorously enforce policies and procedures to accomplish the first two, number three becomes nearly automatic. What I'm suggesting is this. Once we convince the public that the exoneration of the innocent and the conviction of the guilty are co-equal goals in our hearts, in our minds, we will correctly be perceived as being fair-minded and trustworthy. I think most citizens believe this. Most people sense that prosecutors are different from other lawyers. It's important that the public perceive and know that we as prosecutors are motivated by a yearning to always do the right thing for the right reasons. And that is why efforts to dilute our moral authority compromise the opening, comprise the opening cha uh, chapters of our adversary's narrative. There are those who characterize us as amoral and overzealous competitors who will indict ham sandwiches and cover up exculpatory evidence in the name of getting a conviction at all costs. There are those who are not as overly overtly as antagonistic, but who nevertheless portray criminal defense lawyers and prosecutors as morally equivalent actors in the context of the adversarial system. In other words, the defense attorney will do everything he or she can do to get his client off the hook, while the prosecutor will do everything she or he can do to get a conviction. Whether the tactic is to demonize or marginalize, the strategy is the same, to seize the narrative, because once that narrative is seized, the desired agenda is more easily achieved. And what is that agenda? To convince opinion makers and lawmakers that the system is broken, that prosecutors are neither fair-minded enough nor trustworthy enough nor committed enough to fix it. Accordingly, so-called reform legislation is needed to protect the people from those elected by the people to represent the people. The narrative we hear in modern-day New York is that the wolf warning the flock that they are in danger and what is more, that the flock needs protection from the shepherd. That is so wrong on so many levels. That is why we must reclaim the narrative. Seizing the narrative not only necessitates that we define ourselves, but also mandates that we broadcast the truth. The truth is that we are not the villains, nor are we morally equivalent actors to the defense bar. The truth is that we believe in exonerating the innocent and convicting the guilty, while the defense bar believes in exonerating the innocent, and as is their obligation, doing everything they can to shield the guilty. And the truth is that 
Those who deliberately misinform the public that the system is broken are the ones who most likely view the criminal justice system not as a search for the truth, but as a game of catch me if you can. I'm not endorsing the scheme of Shakespeare's Dave the Butcher as represented uh, centuries later in the Eagle's dark lyric, Kill All the Lawyers. The defense bar, like a free press, is vital to individual liberty and our system of justice. What I am suggesting is this. We must remind the people of who we are, what we stand for, and whose side we are on. Seizing the narrative will not be easy, but when has the difficulty of a challenge ever stopped us from before? But if all of us work together, our narrative, the truth of narrative, will prevail. We must remain true to our vocation. We must not reflexively oppose an, an, an idea when the other side is telling the truth and negotiating good faith. Nor should we reject good faith efforts to uh, compromise or reach consensus, especially when the proposal does not threaten our ability to prosecute the guilty, exonerate the truly innocent, and safeguard the integrity of the criminal justice system. Our support of reforms regarding photo arrays and videotaping of interrogations are but two examples of our willingness to reach an agreement. However, it is my belief that we should usually oppose initiatives sponsored by those whom whom rely upon distortion and denunciation. It is my belief that we should consistently oppose any scheme which threatens our ability to prosecute the guilty, exonerate the truly innocent, or safeguard the integrity of the criminal justice system. And it is my belief that we should always oppose compromise that endangers the safety of the people, especially when compromise is the product of weariness or a euphemism for acquiescence. I understand that we are in the midst of dangerous times. Frankly, it seems to me we've always been in the midst of dangerous times that we must be thoughtful and prudent. I get that. We all get that. We cannot, however, lose our nerve and our passion, for if we do, we will lose our soul. Ann Grady, when receiving the Dewey Award, eloquently stated the mission of our vocation. Just as we stand between the innocent and a wrongful conviction, we are also the only lawyer in the courtroom striving for the justice of a rightful conviction. The desire, is to convict, is not, the desire to convict is not unethical when it is founded on your considered judgment and good faith beliefs that a conviction is supported by the evidence. What we do when we secure a conviction of someone who has broken the law is quintessentially an ethical thing. Bob Masters, who will receive the award from my office later tonight, frequently reminds me, and all of us, that the side that is most committed is the side that wins. Let us be the most committed, and let us seize the narrative starting now, not on the eve of the next crisis, but now. Well, I'm actually not just on the back nine, I'm actually approaching the clubhouse on the 18th of my career. <laughs> you now heard all my golf analogies. Any, I do not play golf. Trust me, I do not play golf. <clears throat> Where I have been in my career has never been a restraining influence on my comments or actions. Many of you know that. And I hope one of the things that you take away from my brief remarks is that you too should never hesitate to speak the truth and do what is right regardless of the consequences. Well, I won't go into the details, three times in my career, I faced decisions about whether to speak up or be silent. In each instance, I risked my career and spoke up for what I believed was right, regardless of the consequences. Was I right in each of those instances? A fair question. I don't know for sure. All as I know is I thought I was right and did what I thought was right. Maybe there's something to the luck of the Irish because somehow I survived all three instances. Just maybe I survived because maybe I was right. But then again, maybe I was wrong. All as I know as I look back at my career, it is those three instances that I am most proud of. It is those instances that I define myself for myself. I urge you to go forth and define yourself for yourself. Follow your vocation and the best job you will ever have.
Thank you. Thank you, Jack Ryan. So now we turn to the awards. Uh, we'll be handing out six awards tonight. We are going to start with Kings County. The winner of the 2019 Thomas E. Dewey Award for Kings County is Assistant District Attorney Leonard Joblove. And since you're already clapping, I'm done, and Lenny, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, Lenny serves as the chief of the um, Appeals Bureau for the Kings County District Attorney's Office. Um, during over 30 years of work in the Appeals Bureau, Lenny has handled some of Brooklyn's most dramatic cases. Um, I had the pleasure of looking at uh, a considerable number of those cases. Um, wanted to pick just one as an example of Lenny's uh, uh, good work. Um, Lenny handled the critical appellate work involving New York's so-called Zodiac Killer. Um, and for those of you who don't recall, the Zodiac Killer was charged with the murder and attempted murder of many victims in Brooklyn and Queens in the 1990s. Um, literally terrorized the city for a stretch of time. Um, when the trial court threw out a, 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 a good number of the charges against uh, the Zodiac Killer, based on an interpretation of the statutes of limitations, um, that was rapidly taken up through the appellate courts by Lenny. And uh, the, Lenny persuaded the Court of Appeals that that decision was incorrect. The decision was reversed. All of the charges were reinstated. Um, case went back down for trial. The Zodiac Killer was later convicted and sentenced to serve, uh, I think, a total of about 200 years uh, between the cases in Brooklyn and Queens. Um, in over 150 briefs filed in the New York State Court of Appeals and another 200 briefs filed in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Lenny has also played a critical role in shaping New York State law relating to key criminal uh, law issues, including the mens rea standard for depraved indifference murder, the constitutionality of the discretionary persistent felony offender statute, and perhaps as topical as any issue, the use of recordings made of phone calls placed by individuals in custody uh, on Rikers Island. Just as important as Lenny's work as an appellate advocate for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, his fellow prosecutors in Kings County report that Lenny is a wonderful colleague and a truly gifted supervisor and mentor. Um, I am very pleased to present Lenny with the Dewey Award for his outstanding services to the Kings County District Attorney's Office. Thank you, Mr. Miller, for all those extremely kind words. It's a great honor to have been selected as a recipient of this special award, and I would like to thank the Kings County District Attorney, Eric Gonzalez, and our office's Chief of Staff, Maritza Ming, 
for submitting my name for consideration for this award. I'd also like to thank everyone from the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office who took the time to come here tonight despite the inclement weather. Thank you. And of course, I'd like to thank Tom Dewey and the Bar Association's Dewey Medal Committee for making this event possible. I'd also like to extend congratulations to my colleagues from each of the other five offices who are receiving this award tonight. <clears throat> I've had the privilege of serving under four remarkable district attorneys, Elizabeth Holtzman, Charles J. Hines, Kenneth P. Thompson, and of course, our current district attorney, Eric Gonzalez. Each of those district attorneys has brought to our office a vision for change and creative ways to implement change in order to more effectively achieve our common goals, advancing public safety while at the same time enhancing fairness in the criminal justice system. Each of those four district attorneys has recognized that public safety is often best advanced through prevention and treatment rather than through incarceration. I've been proud to work for district attorneys who are dedicated to that philosophy. To serve as an ADA, and in particular as the Chief of the Appeals Bureau, has been and continues to be a rare and special opportunity. Why do I say that? Well, for me, it's because of the collegiality and it's because of the importance of public service. I have the, the good fortune to work with and for an extraordinary team of talented and hardworking lawyers, paralegals, and support staff, both throughout the Brooklyn DA's office and, in particular, in the Appeals Bureau. I'd like to thank the entire current staff of the Appeals Bureau for their dedication and for their support. That's a total of 47 colleagues by my count, so I hope you'll understand why I won't name each of you individually. I'm pleased that so many of you are here tonight. I've had the pleasure of working with many of you for decades. I'd also like to thank my former supervisors and colleagues in the Appeals Bureau for everything they've taught me. In particular, I'd like to acknowledge the significant contributions to the Bureau by each of the three Bureau Chiefs who supervised me in appeals, Barbara Underwood, Jay Cohen, and Roseanne McKechnie. One more acknowledgement is particularly important. That acknowledgement is for my wife, Anne, and my two sons, Greg and Tim, all of whom are here tonight. I would like to thank each of you for your love and support, and especially for putting up with all of my late nights and weekends at the office. By helping to make it possible for me to do my work, each of you is an important member of the prosecution team. <laughs> the collegiality in our office, and I suspect in district attorney's offices throughout the state, is a special and defining aspect of the experience of being an ADA. That collegiality is, of course, evident in the sense of common purpose that unites everyone in each bureau and in the DA's office as a whole. But that collegiality is evident in other ways. Every five years, members of the illustrious class of 1982, the new ADAs who I started with in criminal court more than 37 years ago, still get together for a reunion 
And at every reunion, we still share that special bond. We share more than a few laughs. And we retell stories that only seem to get better with age. And the collegiality is also evident on a much larger scale. District attorneys and ADAs in different offices throughout the state regularly consult with each other and provide support to each other, whether through the State DA's Association or through NIPTI, or most importantly, through all of those frequent phone calls and emails about the difficult issues that arise almost every day and recently seem to rise even more often than that. The other defining aspect of being an ADA is the importance of the work that we do, serving the public while also helping to shape the law. The cases that we handle in the Appeals Bureau often involve controversial or unsettled issues, and as a result, the decisions in those cases often set a precedent that has an impact in numerous other cases. In appeals, despite the significance of many of our cases, we've traditionally managed to operate behind the scenes with little publicity and little attention from the press. But more and more frequently in the last few years, for some reason, it hasn't always worked out that way. But ultimately, what makes the work so professionally rewarding is that all of us are engaged in the noble cause of public service. To paraphrase the words of the Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez, the purpose of that public service and the purpose of any prosecutor's office is to keep our community safe and to strengthen community trust by ensuring fairness and equal justice for all. It's a privilege to have the opportunity to contribute to that important cause every day and it's an honor to receive this recognition tonight. Thank you. anybody who's standing up, I just want to let you know that there, there are seats available here in the front if you want to sprint up and, and grab a seat. Um, or you can remain standing if you like. Um, some of you may not have noticed, but these um, awards are really heavy. Um, and so uh, as the award recipients will undoubtedly tell you, about a month ago, we uh, sent everybody a note asking them to start a workout regimen um, <laughs> so that they could carry them. Um, now we're moving on to the Bronx District Attorney's Office. Um, the winner of the 2019 Thomas E. Dewey Award for Bronx County is Assistant District Attorney um, Astrid Borgstedt. Astrid serves in the Child Abuse Sex Crimes Bureau of the Bronx County District Attorney's Office. To an extent that is pretty unrivaled in the state of New York, Astrid has dedicated the last 30 years of her career to investigating and prosecuting special victims' cases. Astrid has tried over 50 criminal cases to verdict 
which involve allegations of child abuse, sex crimes, and homicide, a stunning number. She is a leading expert in the field of abusive head trauma and other infant and toddler injuries. Not surprisingly, in addition to all of that, Astrid is a pioneer in the practical application of science in the prosecution of these very serious cases. She has presented DNA evidence in literally dozens of trials and lectures investigators and prosecutors on these core prosecution skills throughout the state. Astrid is described by her supervisors in unbelievably glowing terms as a highly ethical, tenacious, and thorough investigator who exhibits exemplary empathy for the victims of some of New York's most sobering and tragic crimes. It gives me great pleasure to present a Dewey Medal to Astrid Borstedt. First, I want to thank the New York City Bar Association and the Dewey Medal Committee for selecting me as this year's recipient of the Thomas E. Dewey Medal from the Bronx County District Attorney's Office. I'm very humbled and grateful to be in the company of the other very deserving recipients receiving this prestigious award. Next, I would like to thank District Attorney Darcel Clark for nominating me this year. I am deeply honored that you believe that I am worthy of this award. It continues to be my distinct pleasure to work on behalf of the citizens of the Bronx and for you as our leader as we pursue justice with integrity. I would be remiss not to mention the 27 years I worked for former District Attorney Robert Johnson, who taught us all to do the right thing. I have always tried to steadfastly follow these guiding principles in the work that I do. I would also like to thank my current and past Bronx District Attorney Office family members who have taken time out of their evening to come here to support me. To see so many friendly faces is heartwarming and greatly appreciated. Working with such a great group of people is one of the best parts of this job. Finally, I would like to thank my friends outside of the job who came here this evening to help me celebrate this wonderful achievement. Unfortunately, my elderly mother could not be here to see me receive this award since she is unable to travel any longer, but I know she is here in spirit and is very proud of me and sending her love from Rochester. I'm especially happy that my daughter, Isabel, is here tonight to support me. And I know that my nephew's on his way, but he, I don't think he's quite here yet, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> he's a college, you know, <laughs> in Hoboken, just across the river. Um, as some of you already know, I grew up in a medical family. Both of my parents and two of my grandparents were medical doctors. It was certainly expected that I would follow the same path as my family, especially when I had an aptitude for science and math. The furthest thing from my mind was becoming a lawyer, let alone a prosecutor. 
When I was a child, I was a bit shy, some of you probably find that hard to believe, and did not feel comfortable speaking in front of a lot of people. It wasn't until I completed, uh, competed in debate forums during high school that I started to feel at ease giving speeches that I had researched and prepared. I went off to college as a pre-medical student, loading my schedule up with science and lab courses. Soon, I realized that my heart was not into pursuing this path any longer, and I did a lot of soul-searching. My parents, through their example, showed me how important it was to help others and to be involved in the greater good for society. I knew I wanted to devote my life to helping those in need. I was lucky to have two parents who loved me and supported my decision to take a different path. I felt that public service was a way of giving back, and it was a noble aspiration. In the summer before my senior year of college, I did an internship at the, at the public defender's office in my hometown of Rochester, New York. I loved every minute of it. It was there that I had an epiphany, and the pathway to my future suddenly seemed so clear. The internship was very hands-on, and we were able to interview defendants to determine whether they were able to meet the criteria of qualifying for free legal services. Believe it or not, part of the interview also involved asking the defendants what happened and the underlying facts that led to their arrest. While I found these answers fascinating at times, I was also struck by how petty and nonsensical some of those answers were. I will never forget the guy accused of assault who, when asked, why did you hit him, told me, because he looked at me funny. I didn't get that. The big revelation that summer was that I wanted to become a lawyer, and most importantly, that I wanted to become a prosecutor and help the victims and survivors of crimes rather than work individually on behalf of a defendant. At that moment, I knew that I had simultaneously found a career path and a new passion. It was both liberating and exhilarating. At Emory University School of Law, I did everything I could to become a prosecutor. I took as many criminal law and criminal procedure classes that were offered and pursued internships in prosecution offices in New York and Georgia. By the time I graduated law school, I had spent both my summers and my third year of law school working for district attorney's offices. From the moment I started interviewing for a permanent job at the Bronx County District Attorney's Office, I felt like I had found my new home. Everyone was so friendly and the work was bountiful. The camaraderie was contagious and I finally found a group of like-minded people who loved being in a courtroom and wanted to fight for justice alongside me. This was very refreshing, and after being at a law school that, at least at that time, promoted a corporate culture, one of the best days of my life was getting the job offer at the Bronx District Attorney's Office. I started working at my office in August of 1988, fresh out of law school. I remember how eager I was to learn and how excited I was to prosecute my first trials. I spent 16 months in criminal court prosecuting misdemeanors and followed that up with nine months in the Grand Jury Bureau, presenting all kinds of violent crimes to the Grand Jury, including a few homicide cases, under my mentor, Jean Walsh, who is here tonight. I'm so happy. Jean was a powerful role model for me and saw the promise in me when I first became an assistant district attorney. 
I was so happy that we have been able to reconnect after you returned to our office under the new administration uh, four years ago. In October of 1990, I was assigned to a trial bureau and started as a felony assistant in the then-named Domestic Violence Juvenile Sex Crimes Bureau. I was in a bureau that specifically allowed me to interact with victims and survivors of crime, and I was honored to be assigned to prosecute cases involving the office's most vulnerable witnesses. I loved being challenged and received enormous personal satisfaction for helping some of the most traumatized victims get through one of the most difficult times of their lives. Playing a part in their recovery is so rewarding and at the core of why having a profession in public service is so impactful. Whether I am seeking justice for the director of a homeless shelter that was brutally sexually assaulted and executed by a former resident, or for countless infants callously killed by their caretakers, or for the numerous women and children of all ages who've been raped by strangers and acquaintances who bravely confront their attackers and tell their stories, the reward for me is that I have been able to use my skills to help those left behind. The most amazing revelation after over 30 years in this bureau, now called the Child Abuse Sex Crimes Bureau, is that I still love it. That I still get enormous satisfaction from helping vulnerable victims and survivors. And that I'm as committed to public service as ever. As a bonus, all those science and math courses really proved beneficial when DNA emerged as a major type of evidence in sexual assault cases. So that was good for me. Not a wasted education <laughs> for my undergrad. I look around this room and I'm inspired by my fellow recipients of this prestigious award and by the countless other prosecutors that are here in support of us from all of the New York City District Attorney's offices. I have learned from so many of you here, and I'm so appreciative that you have come out tonight. Some of my former bureau chiefs are here, including the 2006 recipient of this award, Judge Elisa Kenderman. You have been a mentor, a friend, and a role model to me. You have shown me how to have a work-life balance and how to successfully raise amazing children despite the atrocities we see every day in prosecuting child abuse cases. I take these lessons with me as I raise my own beloved daughter, Isabel, who has remained resilient throughout her childhood since she has been exposed to some of the worst parts of humanity as she has been in the car or in the house when I've had to be the on-call supervisor of the Bureau and she hears me talk about the facts of these horrific cases. I know my former chief, Edward Talty, a 2012 recipient of this award, is with me in spirit. Your lessons have resonated with so many assistant district attorneys in our office and many in this room, and we miss you every day. I also want to acknowledge my former chief, now executive, Joseph Muroff. Where is he? There he is. Um, who always trusts my experience and is someone I can rely on to keep me in check. The entire current supervisory staff of my unit is also here in full support of me, and that means so much to me. These women, most of whom I have worked with for almost 20 years, make coming to work fun. We laugh and we cry together and are committed to helping each other and our bureau get through the difficult times. 
So, we'll, so a special thank you to my current Bureau Chief, Rachel Ferrari, Deputy Chiefs Joanna Hernandez, there she is, <laughs> um, I, and I don't know if Danielle did make it, but Danielle Pascal, if she's here, and Supervisors Alexander Militano, where is, I know Alex is here, and Kathleen Bear, all the way at the end, um, and also present our, our, far, our farmer uh, senior trial attorney and one of my closest friends, Jill Starshevsky, and former executive Maria Rivero. All of you mean such a great deal to me. Uh, one of the greatest benefits for being in my office as long as I have is occasionally being contacted by a former victim or survivor. When I hear that they have successfully moved on with their lives and they have overcome the trauma of being raped or physically abused and that I had a small part in that recovery, it makes me feel that I have made a positive difference in another person's life. When I am teaching the newer assistant district attorneys in my office, I try to instill in them how important it is for them to have positive interactions with their witnesses. I tell them that imagine if their loved one was raped or killed. Now treat them how you would want your family member treated by the criminal justice system. I have seen hundreds of people come through my bureau since I've been assigned to it. They all shaped me into the prosecutor that I am today. I especially thank my current colleagues. So many of you are in this room, and it means so much to me that you are here. Um, uh, and there's, there's just too countless to even to mention everyone by name, but you know who you are, and you know how special you are to me that you're here. Um, your exuberance and enthusiasm for this job is what helps sustain me as I continue to prosecute these cases. I promise you all that I learn from all of you more than you learn from me. I try to pass down some wisdom and perspective to assist you, but you all help me uh, keep me committed to this work. As we forge forward to January 2020 and meet the demands of bail reform and criminal justice reform, I know that we will all prevail. I am honored to work with all of you. Thank you again for this wonderful recognition, and I hope to continue to live up to it. And to my daughter, Isabel, I hope you find the passion in your life like I did with prosecution. Once you do, it will be your key to happiness and work satisfaction. Thank you. Thank you, Astrid. Um, and now on to Manhattan. The winner of the 2019 Thomas E. <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> Everybody, Chris Conroy. Um, the winner of the 2019 Thomas E. Dewey Award for the New York County District Attorney's Office is Assistant District Attorney uh, Chris Conroy. Chris is a 23-year veteran of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. His experiences there have been enormously varied, um, and his work has been consistently impactful. As a young prosecutor in the trial division, Chris tried 22 cases to verdict, including eight trials to verdict in one year. I don't know how you did that. 
His cases notably included the prosecution of a defendant accused of a violent assault of an elderly neighbor, uh, another the brutal assault and robbery of an undercover officer uh, during a sting operation. Then, while assigned to the Frauds Bureau, and years before Bernie Madoff was a household name, uh, Chris successfully prosecuted 15 members of a stock fraud boiler room operation. Later, Chris served as the deputy chief of the Homicide Investigations Unit. As part of that unit, Chris obtained convictions of five defendants, um, who, each of which had been charged with uh, murder for hire. And then after a long investigation, Chris obtained the convictions of over 40 drug dealers and three gun dealers. Today, Chris serves as the chief of the Major Economic Crimes Bureau, where his focus has shifted somewhat. He now targets compliance with international sanctions, amongst other things, recovering over $20 billion in forfeitures. Chris is currently assisting in the prosecution of individuals accused of engaging in a massive cryptocurrency pyramid scheme. In short, a remarkable career. I'm delighted to recognize Chris with a Dewey Medal for his outstanding service to the people of the state of New York. I want to start just by saying it's an honor to be up here uh, with all of the other recipients. Uh, it's always really interesting and impressive to hear the work uh, people are doing uh, as prosecutors. I also want to just let everybody know that I have become aware that there are several members of my bureau here, and apparently there's an over-under on how long my speech is going to be. <laughs> They won't tell me what the bet is, and I'm not sure if that means they think I talk too long or too short, but I'm told I'll be informed at the end what the bet was and who won. Uh, I sort of wish I was up here to give a summation because it would be much easier. You have a captive audience and you know what you have to accomplish. Uh, here, not so much. But I've been lucky enough to have a great job and a great office in a really rewarding line of work for over 23 years. I've learned a lot, I've changed a lot, and I've been honored to serve the people of the state of New York the whole time. Along the way, I have met and have been impacted by incredible people, family, colleagues, cops, victims, and even some criminals. I have a lot of thank yous to say. I had the honor of being hired in 1996 by Robert Morgenthau, and I worked for him for 14 years. For the past 10 years, I have had the honor of working for the current district attorney, Cyrus Vance, who I thank for continuing to allow, to allow me to do the work that I love. I also want to thank Mike Sachs, who's the chief of our investigations division, Karen Friedman Agnifilo, who is our chief assistant, and Carrie Dunn, who is general counsel to the office, for all of their support in the work that I do every day and their support in, in receiving this award. And I also want to thank the committee for this honor. Uh, I had high hopes for this job in September of 1996 when I started at One Hogan, although I was actually across the street at the somewhat less iconic 80 Center Street. From the moment I walked into my office and met my new classmates, the job has exceeded my expectations. I spent four years in a trial bureau, Trial Bureau 80, 
which I will say is still the best trial bureau in the office. Uh, I learned a lot there. I had some great mentors. And then I moved to white collar work in the Frauds Bureau, which is what it was called at the time. I was there for about three years. I learned a lot more there and then went up to the Homicide Investigation Unit where I was involved in long-term investigations into drug and gang-related murder and violence. Doing that work really drove home the reality of circumstance in life. It drove home how lucky I was to be born into the family I was born into, the circumstances I was born into, and it made very clear to me that not everyone is so lucky. I dealt with people who had done bad to really bad things. Some went to trial or pled guilty and went to jail. Others cooperated with us in an effort to work off time and help make cases. Some of those folks I got to know pretty well, and on some level I even liked some of them. Some of them I didn't like so much. But from each of them I learned something about life and choices and the impact external factors can have on where someone ends up. Since 2011, I've been back doing white-collar work and have the honor now of leading the office's major economic crimes bureau. Where in the Homicide Investigation Unit, I saw how difficult circumstances can influence people's options and decisions. In MECB, I see more greed at work. I'm often amazed in this work at almost the opposite concept, how frequently people who have every advantage let greed take them down a path to criminality. In many ways, that's harder to understand, and their crimes often leave people in economic ruin and despair. I've loved all the different kinds of work I've done at the DA's office, and I, I think I'm in a pretty unique office, the Manhattan DA's office, in terms of the range of the kinds of work that we can do there. Every stop along the way taught me a lot about people, that sometimes people do really awful things, and it's not always so easy to predict or understand who those people will be or why they do what they do. As prosecutors, we're asked to deal with the results of those actions to hold the wrongdoers appropriately accountable, and to hopefully bring some closure and a measure of peace and justice to the victims and to the community. I have learned over the years, I hope, to work toward justice as best I can in what is at its heart a human undertaking, as dictated by a thorough, inquisitive, diligent effort to ascertain the facts. What happened? To confront and acknowledge bad or contrary facts and to get as close to the truth as we can get, and to have that be the job. That's what appealed to me in 1996, and it is what I realize today more than ever is so important. I came across a quote about justice recently, uh, and in full disclosure, I'll say it was last night as I was trying to figure out what to say here. Uh, and it's from James Baldwin, and it really struck a chord in me. It is certain, in any case, that ignorance, allied with power, is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. And that is what we as prosecutors fight against, ignorance of facts. A criminal courtroom is one of the few places left in today's world where facts matter, where we ask people to focus on evidence and make decisions based on that evidence. Doing this work is like creating an oasis of facts. We are constantly fed opinion and political view and wishful thinking as fact. More dangerously, we talk about fake news and alternative facts when we don't like the actual facts. We close ourselves off from contrary opinions and information and see reasonable discussion and consideration of different views as weakness. 
but as prosecutors, the kind of professionals that are the legacy of Thomas Dewey and his tenure at the DA's office in Manhattan, and that I think is the legacy of all the district attorney's offices in the city these days, our job and our responsibility is to try to work through that, to get as close to the truth as humanly possible, understanding that perspective and life experience and context can, of course, impact how facts may be interpreted or used. But none of those things can change what the facts are. That mandate, gather facts, present facts to fellow citizens, and then ask them to apply common sense as a group to the same set of facts and to consider the law and make a decision on the interplay between the facts and the law. That is why I love being a prosecutor, and I hope to keep doing this job for years to come. I'm going to get down from my high horse now and get to the thank yous. I want to start with my parents, who are both here in the audience. Uh, and who instilled in me an interest in the world, both at large and in the houses and blocks and neighborhoods nearby. Their example of public involvement and civic responsibility has been an inspiration to me and to many around them, I suspect. Thank you both for that. I have four brothers. As an aside, I'm the shortest. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter about that or anything. Uh, my brother Greg was able to make it tonight. Uh, they are a collectively supportive bunch, uh, and over the years, I will say, they have helped me learn a lot about both justice and injustice, and I can explain more about that after the ceremony if anybody's interested. Uh, I also quickly want to mention my uncle. My cousin is here, my uncle's son. My uncle couldn't be here, but he retired out of Manhattan North Homicide in 1997, I think, or thereabouts. He spent the 1980s in the 4-4 up in the Bronx which was pretty rough stuff, although a couple of times he got me into the 4-4 party at Yankee Stadium, which was pretty cool. Uh, his stories back then got me interested in law enforcement generally. Uh, my colleagues, you make coming to work interesting, inspiring, and exciting every day. I've been lucky enough to work with and learn from some amazing people, and I'm not going to try to name them all now. I am going to specifically mention one, Luke Rettler, who is here in the audience and who was my boss in the Homicide Investigation Unit uh, and has been doing that kind of work for more years than I can count. Uh, I do want to thank all of the incredible lawyers, the investigators, the paralegals, the analysts who work in the Bureau and who I've worked with over the years. Many of the lawyers from the Bureau are here, uh, and, and thank you for coming and showing up and to the lawyers from the DA's office generally. Um, know that if you are here, and many people who are not here, you've each impacted me and made a difference to me, and I thank you for that. Specifically to my MECB crew, thank you for everything you do. I view my receiving this award as a reflection of the work that we have all done and continue to do together. I want to thank my kids. They're all here. Uh, in the audience, probably thrilled that I'm mentioning them. Uh, they have, much to their chagrin, helped hone my interrogation skills. <laughs> they have kept me vaguely aware of the latest social media and technology advances, which is key in our line of work these days. Although I'll admit, sometimes I feel like they intentionally try to keep me behind, which I figured out the other day when I asked them what was the hippest new social media platform and they told me to check out MySpace. Uh, you're each great kids, uh, and thank you very much, Lily and Kate and Jack, for coming and for keeping me on my toes 
and for making clear to me all the times that I am unjust. My wife, Lisa, who is here in the audience, it's a long way from Jay Paul's in 1992. I would not be up here without your love and partnership. I could say a lot, and you would have to listen, but I will steal the closing you use in your yoga classes and just say thank you and namaste and leave it at that. I'd like to again congratulate my fellow awardees. You know, you all do amazing work. I'm sure the two who go after me do amazing work too. I just haven't heard your speeches yet. Uh, it really is an honor to be up here with all of you and, and with Jack Ryan and Mike Miller. I want to tell, and I was a little unsure about whether to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it, what the hell, uh, a quick story about a pers personal connection sort of to this award that makes it even more thrilling for me to receive it. When Tom Dewey called me to tell me I was getting the award, I obviously was surprised and excited, uh, and Catherine Christian, I won't tell anybody that you had already told me I was getting it because you thought I knew. Uh, oh, wait, oops. Um, but I told Mr. Dewey that I was looking at a framed bill on top of a bookcase in my office. Uh, and it was a, bill, a New York State bill signed into law on March 30th, 1950 by Governor Thomas E. Dewey. The bill was introduced by an assemblyman named Malcolm Wilson, who in addition to later becoming Lieutenant Governor and then Governor of New York for a time, was my grandfather. I took the bill from his house when we were cleaning it out as a reminder that I work in a great office with a great reputation, a reputation that was developed by Thomas Dewey and continues through to this day under District Attorney Vance. Thank you again to the committee for this award. I will treasure it, and thank you for the recognition. Thank you, Chris. On to Queens. The winner of the 2019 Thomas E. Dewey Award for Queens County is Assistant District Attorney Robert Masters. Bob is a 30-year veteran of the Queens District Attorney's Office, where he currently serves as the Executive Assistant District Attorney for the DA's Legal Affairs Division. In that role, Bob supervises all appellate and post-conviction litigation throughout the Queens District Attorney's Office, trains prosecutors at all levels of their professional development, serves as the DA's liaison to the NYPD and all other outside agencies, and represents his office in Albany, particularly with respect to criminal justice legislation, including, most recently, uh, in connection with the Raise the Age legislation, and efforts to reform identification procedures and the use of equipment to record interrogations. In his earlier years at the Queens District Attorney's Office, Bob served as the Deputy Bureau Chief of the Narcotics Investigations Bureau, the Bureau Chief of the Supreme Court, and the Deputy Executive Assistant District Attorney in the Trial Division. In addition to this remarkable array of leadership positions, Bob has worked on some highly impactful cases as a line prosecutor. As but a few examples, Bob was the lead prosecutor uh, on the Queens side of the Zodiac Killer case that we heard about earlier. He also prosecuted the notorious perpetrator of the Wendy's Massacre 
in which five employees of a fast food restaurant were murdered. And he was a member of the prosecution team of the defendant who uh, killed an off-duty detective. Perhaps just as impressive, uh, Bob has also handled many of the Queens District Attorney's Office wrong man cases, where reinvestigation of claims of innocence have resulted in some cases, uh, in some cases, of convictions being set aside. It is my pleasure to present a Dewey Medal to Bob Masters for his outstanding service as a prosecutor in the Queens County District Attorney's Office. as heavy as they tell you it is. I'm mindful of the scene from the movie Broadcast News when William Hurt's character, Tom Grunick, asks Albert Brooks, Aaron Altman, what do you do when your real life exceeds your dreams? To which Brooks' character replies, keep it to yourself. And ordinarily I do. But I'd be remiss if I let the next 21 days pass without publicly acknowledging my great good fortune, my deep gratitude, and the enormous sense of purpose that I've found and enjoyed by walking among all of you in our shared mission over these past 29 years, six months, and 19 days. Initially, I want to congratulate all the other winners from the other offices. Having listened to the remarkable resumes of accomplishment only highlights my fortune to be counted among you. I must also congratulate Allison and Deanna from my office, uh, as well as all of those from the other offices who have been nominated, not just this year, but have been nominated and won in the past. You should each be very proud of the wonderful achievements that resulted in your inclusion in this wonderful honor roll. I want to thank the Dewey Committee. Uh, Mr. Dewey called me on a day and left a voicemail on which I happened to be uh, being deposed in a federal civil rights action. So suffice to say, when I got back to my office and I checked the voicemail, it was welcome news. And I have to thank my friend Dan Alonzo. Uh, I suspect that you had more than a little bit to do with me standing up here before all of you. Mindful of the time, I'm going to attempt thrift uh, as opposed to brilliance in my remarks. So I've broken them down into two very kind of distinct portions, the personal and then the much more personal. Uh, of course, I have thanks to give and compliments as well as debts to pay. Uh, it starts with those I've worked for and with, those who did not just provide me an opportunity but trusted me, trusted my judgment, my instincts, my little voice that I used to torture Jack, Jim, Dan, Terry Landino, and so many others with over the years. I suspect in the coming weeks uh, I'll be able to more fully express my gratitude to my office mates, but public recognition of some folks is absolutely necessary. Jack, I was only in the office a year when you returned, 
And it was clear from early on that we recognized that we, each, we were each the other kind of lawyer. And that led to the easiest of professional relationships. But it was our shared background that made things so special. How I could qualify sharing deep confidences with the simple admonition, former altar boy's oath, and I would be secure that you'd be waterboarded before you would ever reveal the slightest thing. It was that trust which set to the stage for our deep friendship and for the protection that you've afforded me during life's roughest innings. And thank you forever, Jack. Thank you. Jim Quinn. If Jack is our office's heart, then Jim is its soul. Next week, it'll be 42 years that he has carried on this love affair with what it is we do. And the citizens of my home county, Queens, and all of law enforcement have been the beneficiaries of that. That you invited me along as your deputy for part of that ride, I'll always be grateful. To have learned from you, to have joked with you, every moment of it was a deep pleasure. Dan Saunders, thank you for trusting me in so many important cases that you permitted me to add just a, a small bit of poetry to your seamless strategy, that you permitted me ultimately to be your partner. That, that partnership of total trust and unity of purpose developed a professional and personal friendship the likes of which I wish every one of you in this room to enjoy it sometime. Dan, that you, Brad Leventhal, John Costolano, do not have one of these, and I do, is an injustice approaching Derek Jeter's never getting an MVP award, but someone named Zoilo Versailles happened to have received one. I truly hope to be here on the day that each of you are so honored. To people I spend days with, Johnette, Joe, Ed, Anastasia, Chris, Will, so many others, thank you. The support staff, Jelaine, Jill, Janine, and too many others that you helped get me through my technological challenges with patience and good humor. And of course, office detectives. We all know that prosecutors can't be prosecutors without relying on cops. And I've had a bounty of those blessings. Chief Russo, of course, Larry Fester, God rest him, Danny Collins, Jerry Laverti. You guys don't just make miracles happen. You're my friends. You've been my sounding boards over all the years. And I'm so fortunate that my Buffalo contingent came. Judge Sedita, Mike Flaherty, Colleen, thank you so much for journeying here to spend this evening with me. And I must also thank Mr. Dewey himself, because more than 70 years ago, he proved that wearing a mustache may be fatal to being a presidential candidate. <laughs> but for a DA, it's not such a bad thing. It's not a particularly well-kept secret that over the last few years that uh, I've been widowed and orphaned. That I've rarely felt alone since is a tribute to so many people in this room. To my folks, my dad, the transit guy who enlisted the day after Pearl Harbor, and my mom, the orphan, who never finished the 10th grade, but she could read people better than any first grade detective I ever met. I really wish they were here. They would be pleased to see that their many sacrifices came to something, that their much too casual 
superficial, superficial wise guy's son, ultimately found something, found a purpose, something meaningful to which he could so readily commit, that ultimately it took a while, but he finally learned that character matters. And to Marilyn, some of you knew her and recognized how gentle she was. She was a civilian, so much of this that we do was foreign to her, but she never hesitated to sacrifice so that her husband could do whatever a crime, a case, a victim, a witness needed, that she insisted on typing my opening statements, my summations, just so she could sense why this ugly side of humanity was worth the fighting for. It epitomized who she was and earned her the nickname in our office, St. Marilyn. I wish I could see her now in her embarrassed smile when I asked everyone to applaud for her. And my daughter, Susan, kind enough, their fiance, Dan, she surprised me by being here. I thought being the good mom she is, she'd be putting my grandson, the young prince, Elliot, to bed, but she came here to be with me. Uh, that you sacrificed so much on during your teen years so that I could do this work and that you got stuck listening to all my ridiculous voir hypotheticals. I can't thank you enough. Any sacrifice that I've ever made on your behalf has been rewarded tenfold by you being the wonderful woman you are. But of course, the one who's not here and we all know is in spirit, Judge Brown. He started as my boss. He gave me professional opportunities. He raised my profile. He defended me. He supported me. He became such an example of grace, of dignity, of honesty. He became more than a mentor. He became a dear friend. I miss him terribly. Not a day goes by that I don't ask myself, what would this wise man do in this circumstance? Truly, we will not see his kind pass our way again. But now the more personal. I'm going to share a secret. Whenever I was handling a matter, the time by which I was the most troubled, the most conflicted moment, was when I had to say the people rest. You know, I doubt whether I'd done everything, whether I'd done my best. I'd question whether I'd neglected something of significance, overlooked something crucial, I torture myself that maybe my reluctance to finish this thing was born out of a fear that maybe I kind of couldn't bear the result that was coming. Well, now as I'm only 21 days from resting for the final time, I realize there's one last thing of significance that I must do. And it comes straight from my high school days when a priest leading us in prayer before some otherwise forgettable sporting contest would always punctuate his call for the Lord to help us, nice Catholic kids, pulverize the other nice Catholic kids <laughs> who were in the other locker room by exhorting us with the same words. Play bravely, boys, for the Lord hates a coward. Well, throughout the decades since, I have uttered that phrase to myself time and again, always under my breath, often in court, when dealing with controversy at sensitive meetings, and I offer it to all of you. For never in all the years that I've had the privilege of doing this work, of being counted among your number, to practice what Jack calls our vocation, have those words been more apt. It's now more than ever when we're all so mistrusted, our motives mischaracterized, our successes discounted, diminished, if not denied entirely, that we must play bravely. 
And that starts by telling our public, our constituents, our witnesses, our victims, their families, the hard truths, rather than plying them with facile myths. That we must trade in solemn oaths rather than false promises. That we too must protect and serve, just like our partners, the police, even if it costs us our popularity and we're unfairly reviled as a result. And the challenge of doing that, of playing bravely, has never been more difficult. And in the new year, it will become ever more daunting. The temptation to surrender or to be silent, it'll be powerful. The desire to tell a confused public what it wants to hear rather than what must be said, that perhaps, perhaps the reforms need to be reformed themselves, those temptations will be there on a daily basis. But the Lord hates a coward. And we must do what is hard and right rather than what is easy and popular. We're very lucky people. We have great jobs, vocations. What makes them great is that we get to do the right thing all the time. But to really do this great job the right way, you have to be prepared to lose it over a matter of principle. And trust me, if you do, there is great comfort in having played bravely. Tonight as I round third base and I head for home, only 21 days of sand left in my hourglass, I must note the pleasure it has been to share our cause. The profound privilege to have walked among all of you, to know that at a time when we were needed most, all of us were at our best. For that, I remain forever grateful and in your debt. And as I leave the stage, I am certain that the challenges that lie ahead will be met by you, the marvelously talented people in this room, and our shared mission will indeed be accomplished. So please, now go and play bravely for the Lord hates a coward. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. And now to Staten Island. The winner of the 2019 Thomas E. Dewey Award for Richmond County is Assistant District Attorney Lisa Davis. Lisa is a felony prosecutor in the Trial Bureau of the Richmond County District Attorney's Office. She began her career at the other end of New York City, in the Bronx. In the Bronx, Lisa served in the various bureaus handling the prosecution of cases in criminal court, the evaluation of felony cases being considered for grand jury presentation, and the prosecution of defendants charged with participating in narcotics offenses, gang-related criminal conduct, and major cases. With that substantial background, when Lisa joined the Staten Island District Attorney's Office, she immediately started to handle the office's most impactful violent felony cases from intake through disposition. As but one example of Lisa's impressive work, 
she obtained convictions of a defendant who was accused of three murders, tragic deaths of his girlfriend, their four-month-old four daughter, and his girlfriend's one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. In other equally sobering and important cases, Lisa obtained the convictions of a defendant who killed his pregnant girlfriend, another defendant who murdered his neighbor, and yet another who killed his bosses at work. All of these successful prosecutions were possible because of the skill, the determination, the empathy, the courage that Lisa brought to each prosecution. And it is no small wonder that Lisa is held in such enormously high regard by her colleagues in the Staten Island District Attorney's Office. For all of this and more, Lisa is clearly a deserving recipient of this year's Thomas E. Dewey Medal for the County of Richmond. Thank you. First, I would like to thank the Thomas Dewey Committee. Oh, this is very heavy for presenting me with this award, and to D.A. McMahon for nominating me for this award. This profession can be very stressful, demanding, sometimes frustrating, but as I stand here in front of you, friends, family, colleagues, I can honestly say there is nothing else in this world I would rather be doing. Some of you know that this is my second career. I was a teacher. I taught for eight years in Manhattan. I was actually a kindergarten teacher. I actually taught a kindergarten class in Chinatown. Um, but I came to my senses, no offense to my mother and the great teachers out there, um, but I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And I also knew that if I wanted to spend the day with children that don't listen, I can go home to my own children and spend the day with them. So it is an honor to be recognized for doing something that I truly and honestly love to do. Um, I spent the first 16 and a half years in the Bronx DA's office. Um, I learned so much while I was there, and I worked with some amazing and incredible people. It's because of what I learned there and accomplished in the Bronx that I can do what I do in the Richmond County District Attorney's Office. I also made some incredible friends who I consider family, many of whom are here tonight, and I'd like to thank some of them. Jessica Goodwin, Javette Johnson, who is now working in the Richmond County District Attorney's Office as the Chief of the Special Victims Bureau, Carmen Martinez, who came out even though she's sick tonight, Christine Skacia, who is the Chief of homicide in the Bronx District Attorney's Office, who I still speak to every single morning on my way to work, even though my commute is a lot shorter. Felicity Lung, who also came here, Julie DeLeon, and Kristen Botetto. These women have been with me in the trenches since the beginning. They have made me a better person, a better attorney, and I still see them as often as possible, even though most of us are scattered among the district attorney's offices and the state attorney general's office. You cannot do this job without support, and they give it in spades. 
For the last three years, I've had the pleasure of working at the Richmond County District Attorney's Office. And just like the Bronx, I have had the privilege of working with amazing attorneys, support staff such as Lynette, Maria, Tom Donahue, who drove me here tonight. Great job, Tommy, with the lights and sirens, and members of service. I am fortunate enough to be assigned to what I consider to be the best bureau, the trial bureau, my guys in the back. Um, and I would like to thank the incredibly talented attorneys and fantastic support staff that man that bureau with me. We are lucky enough to have the best chief, Mark Palladino, um, Deputy Bureau Chief Adam Silberlight, their guidance, support, and Mark's calm demeanor <laughs> set the tone for our bureau and make it possible for all of us to do our jobs the way it's meant to be done. And hopefully they will assist us with the upcoming reforms and get us through this discovery process that is coming up. Um, as I was fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to work for both the Bronx and the Richmond County District Attorney's offices, I've had the privilege to work under three remarkable district attorneys. I'd like to thank the Honorable Robert T. Johnson for getting me out of the classroom and putting me into a courtroom. I'd like to thank the Honorable Darcel Clark for allowing me to continue prosecuting in the county that I learned to love and also for challenging me from the bench. Anyone who knows Judge Clark knows that if you were in her courtroom, you better have stockings on and you better be on top of your game. And I too would like to tell a story which may not be appropriate, but this is one of my favorite memories of Judge Clark. I was doing a misdemeanor trial in front of Judge Clark and the defendant would not take a plea. And she called us up to the bench and she asked the defense counsel, why is your client not taking a plea? I have a principal waiting outside to testify against her. And he said, my client is leaving this in God's hands. And she said, you better tell your client God is not sitting on this bench. <laughs> and that lady took that plea within two minutes. And lastly, I would like to thank the Honorable Michael McMahon for giving me the opportunity to come home and to prosecute cases in my own county and without the added three-hour commute. <laughs> District Attorney McMahon has made it possible for me to prosecute cases that are important, challenging, and rewarding, and to be doing this where I grew up is invaluable. So again, I would like to thank him and the executive staff, Paul Capafari, who just recently retired, Tim Kohler, who told me if my speech was not at least five minutes, he would drag me back up onto this podium. <laughs> Tom Bridges, who actually came here on his day off. Is that good enough, Tom? <laughs> Wanda D'Oliveria and Ashley Owens for giving me the opportunity to do what I love. And now, really, lastly, I have to thank my family. My parents are here. My daughter, Amanda Ray, who works at the Bronx District Attorney's Office. The major, is that good enough, Tom? For your love and your support, I could absolutely not do this without you guys. And I know the Dewey Awards are probably not the right place for a shout out, but today is my daughter's 28th birthday. And instead of spending it, <laughs> instead of spending it at the local bar, having a couple of drinks, she is spending it at this bar with me, and I appreciate that. Happy birthday, baby girl. Thank you.
Thank you, Lisa. Um, and now we turn to the Special Narcotics Prosecutor. The winner of the 2019 Thomas E. Dewey Award for the Special Narcotics Prosecutor is Assistant District Attorney Andres Torres. Andres is a senior supervising attorney in the Special Investigations Bureau of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor's Office. In his role as a senior supervising attorney, Andres oversees high-level investigations requiring expertise in court-authorized wiretaps, surveillance technology, and traditional investigative techniques. He runs his own investigations and closely supervises and collaborates with his colleagues at the Special Narcotics Prosecutor's Office in their cases. Andres brings a special array of personal experiences to the business of prosecuting international drug traffickers. Andres was born in Columbia and lived in Columbia until he was seven years old when his family moved to St. Louis, Missouri. After graduating from Georgetown University, Andres monitored elections in Belize for the Organization of American States. He studied the history of Columbia's Civil War with FARC in Columbia as part of a Fulbright scholarship. He worked on a human rights, democracy, and governance program in Columbia for USAID. Only then did he go to law school and become a prosecutor. Andre's cases seem pulled from outstanding episodes, and I'll just say Miami Vice, which shows my age, but, but, <laughs> but I think you'll agree with me. Um, he has prosecuted defendants who smuggled drugs into the U.S. hidden in furniture shipped from Colombia. Must be some pretty big sofas. Um, he has prosecuted individuals who smuggled drugs into the United States while working on one of the world's largest tall ships a sailing vessel that Spain bought and used for goodwill tours to the United States. And some of the folks who worked on the ship added narcotics trafficking to the goodwill tour. And he prosecuted a large-scale drug trafficking operation that was orchestrated by a defendant out of a prison cell in Puerto Rico. Andres Pierce described him as highly skilled, innovative, and determined an attorney who uses his talents to support his lifelong dedication to public service, justice, and good governance. I'm delighted to recognize Andres with this Dewey Medal for his outstanding service to the Special Narcotics Prosecutor's Office. Good evening, and thank you all for being here. I want to thank the New York City Bar Association um, and congratulate my fellow awardees. This is an immense honor and, um, to receive this medal and to be in your company. I am truly humbled and grateful. I'm standing here tonight with deep gratitude because I have been fort the fortunate recipient of unconditional love and sacrifice from family and friends throughout my life. I've also benefited immeasurably from living in a country that provides itself on creating opportunity for so many people. And interestingly enough, I'm also here tonight because of a random and life-altering twist of fate. 
When I was seven years old, a violent and destructive earthquake ravaged a small city nestled in a valley of the Andes Mountains in Colombia, where I was born. The youngest of three children, to an American mother and a Colombian father, and where I spent my early childhood. In many ways, my childhood there was idyllic. We lived in a very tight-knit neighborhood where every family knew each other. My best friend lived across the street. We went to the same school and spent hours afterwards playing pickup soccer games with my brother and other kids in the neighborhood. On weekends, my dad would take my brother, my sister, and I on long hikes into the mountains where he would tell us stories about our family's deep roots in Colombia, and we would spend hours skipping rocks into a river that flowed near our neighborhood. That life, the life that I knew and loved, ended dramatically in just a few short seconds when that devastating earthquake struck our town, completely destroying our home, our neighborhood, my school, and our city, and forever altering our lives. In less than a minute, we lost everything and were left homeless for a period of time. But unlike so many others, by the grace of God, we made it out alive. Sitting amongst the ruins of our home and our city, my parents made the difficult decision to leave Colombia. So just like that, about two months after the earthquake, we left our cat with our family friend, packed our bags, took our dog, and moved into a tiny apartment next door to my grandmother in the suburbs of a Midwestern city in the United States. That transition wasn't easy. I remember my first day in the third grade at my new school when the teacher asked everyone to write a paragraph about what we had done over the summer. I could have written a short novel about what we had experienced that summer, but I didn't know how to read or write in English. Not only was I the only new kid, but on top of that, I was the only kid who couldn't complete the first basic assignment of the year. The embarrassment and sense of isolation was almost too much to bear. But then again, I was lucky to have a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Sharp, a teacher in the truest sense of the word, who welcomed me fully into the class and treated me just like anybody else. She encouraged me to write in Spanish and then worked with me to translate my writings from Spanish into English. And that's how, more or less, I learned to read and write in English. And before I knew it, I'd caught up to the other kids. It was also in those years that my Italian-American grandmother, my nonna, took a central role in my life. While my mom and dad worked tirelessly to get us back on our feet, my grandmother took the three of us to school, helped us with our homework, took my brother and I to baseball practice, and my sister to her piano lessons, and most importantly, provided a sense of stability to three dislocated and disoriented children. She also inspired us with her stories about growing up as the daughter of Italian immigrants during the Great Depression and about our grandfather's heroics in World War II. Both she and my grandfather were the embodiment of the greatest generation. As we adapted to our new life, we didn't lose contact with our friends and family in Colombia. Unfortunately, the news that we heard was deeply troubling. Drug cartels, left-wing guerrilla groups, and right-wing paramilitary organizations converged in a never-ending cycle of violence, and parts of Colombia quickly sank into an indescribable abyss of despair, a reality different than what I had lived, but one that perhaps my parents had quietly anticipated before deciding to leave. In fact, near the time that we left, the M-19 guerrilla movement launched an attack against the Colombian Supreme Court in Bogota, 
that led to the death of 12 Supreme Court justices, as well as 100 other people, many of whom had the misfortune of just showing up to work on that fateful day. Some of the facts of that horrific event are still in dispute. However, evidence later emerged to indicate that that unspeakable act of terrorism and many, many others was financed in part by a shadowy figure named Pablo Escobar, a criminal who had become immensely rich and powerful through drug trafficking. Fueled with money from the drug trade, Colombia had quickly been transformed into one of the most violent countries on earth, and it seemed like just about anybody who could leave did leave. Yet, in spite of that chaos, confusion, and the violence that enveloped Colombia during those years, many people did stay and dedicated their lives and energy to reasserting the rule of law over the seemingly insurmountable and interconnected forces of organized crime, drug trafficking, and political violence. One of those persons was my uncle, who was a judge and prosecutor during one of the bloodiest periods in Colombian history. For years, my uncle endured death threats just for doing his job and watched his friends, colleagues, and countrymen murdered and kidnapped. In the late 1990s, fearing for his own life, he applied for political asylum in the U.S. And just like we had done 15 years earlier, he left his life and work in Colombia and moved with his family into a small apartment in the Midwest where he spent the last two decades of his life. My uncle passed away from cancer a few years ago. He was an anonymous hero who, to my knowledge, never received any awards or recognition, even though he devoted his life to the cause of justice and paid an enormous price. Thanks to my uncle and so many others like him, Colombia is a vastly different country today than it, what it used to be, and I encourage everyone in this room to visit. These are the stories that I absorbed growing up, and these are the causes that I found inspiring and worthy. And after more than a decade of Jesuit education, which my mom broke her back to pay for because she believed deeply in education and sacrificed immeasurably for us to develop our minds and our souls, I knew that I wanted to devote my life and career to public service. And where possible, I wanted to find some way to be a bridge between the United States and Colombia. After college, I returned to Columbia on a Fulbright scholarship and was then lucky to be hired by the United States Agency for International Development in Bogota for five incredible years. While representing the United States, I worked to forge strong diplomatic relations between both countries. It was in that position that I saw with my own eyes how millions of dollars in drug money funded terrorist organizations that waged a brutal, decades-long war. And of course, having grown up in the United States, I knew how drugs shattered lives and communities all over this country. It was at that time that I decided to return to the United States to become a prosecutor. I wanted to use the law to combat the criminal organizations to continue to cause so much destruction to two countries that I love and that have personally affected members of my own family. I had the great fortune to be hired by Robert Morgenthau at the Manhattan DA's office, and I spent my first four years as a prosecutor in trial bureau 40. But after four years, I knew that I wanted to help take on the criminal organizations that inspired me to go to law school in the first place. So I called my friend Wes Chang, who was in the Special Investigations Bureau, to pick his brain. When Wes told me that he was leading wiretap investigations linked to international drug cartels, that was all I needed to hear. Within minutes, I started the process of transferring to special narcotics. 
The last seven years at Special Narcotics have been some of the greatest, most fulfilling experiences of my professional career. Through Special Narcotics, my colleagues and I have done our best to confront the devastation of New York's drug overdose crisis by taking drugs off the streets, by building cases that are both local and international in scope, and by holding criminals accountable. I've been able to work with and learn from some of the best prosecutors and law enforcement agents in this city, as well as with fiercely committed law enforcement agents in Colombia, Spain, Panama, Argentina, Peru, and elsewhere. The work is difficult, interesting, and deeply rewarding. Working at Special Narcotics has fulfilled a deep desire to do my part to protect the public, both in New York and in places like Colombia, from the scourge of drug trafficking. Because of that, I want to thank District Attorney Vance for his leadership. And I want to deeply thank Bridget Brennan for her vision and support. I also want to thank all of my colleagues and friends at Special Narcotics and the DA's office for their friendship and camaraderie. I want to thank my mom, my dad, my brother, sister, and of course, Nana, and for all of my other family members and friends who have blessed me with their love and companionship. I love you all very, very much. And finally, I want to recognize and thank my wife and children, to my two wonderful kids, as you know, you make me proud every single day, and you are the light of my life. And to my wife, anything that I have lived or experienced over the last 20 years would not have been possible without you. You have filled my life with love, meaning, and joy. I cannot imagine my life without you. Our children are as lucky to have you as their mom as I am to have you as my wife. I love you all very, very much. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of this evening's uh, events. Um, how about one more big round of applause for our six awards? <laughs> and, um, and, and just want to say, Jack Ryan, thank you for your inspiring talk. On a lighter note, I understand that there's a 28th birthday party uh, across the hall, and we're all invited, so, uh, so we'll see you across the hall. <laughs>